Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan coming to you on a dark, cold winter day in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is literary agent Caitlin Blaisdell. Caitlin began her career editing for Harvard Business School and HarperCollins, before making the transition to her current job as a literary agent for Lisa Dawson Associates, where she has helped nurture and sell such clients as Charles Strauss, Rebecca Zanetti, Zen Cho, and numerous others that include yours truly. I chat with Caitlin about our own professional relationship, the ups and downs of the publishing market, an agent's role where business and creativity meet, and the way our industry has changed over the last decade. Caitlin was also kind enough to answer some of the more standard agent questions, such as what is she, what she's looking for and what kills a query letter. Enjoy my conversation with Caitlin Blaisdell. You started off uh, as an agent around what 2002 I think you're around there yeah yeah and you were coming from publishing right I was an editor before that I actually started out in Boston in a Harvard Business School press doing business books right because oh weird I know because I was in Boston and that's what there was and it was a great place to start but I just found them really boring. I didn't really enjoy reading the books. So, <laughs> so yeah, so we I took the plunge and moved to New York City and I got a job at HarperCollins. Um, they were just launching their science fiction and fantasy imprint, which was called uh, Harper Prism at the time. And I was working with John Silbersack and Chris Schelling, who are now both agents also. And yeah, and then we worked with John Douglas and Jennifer Brell and Jennifer Hershey, like after the merger, it was, yeah, it was a great start. Yeah, that, that's cool. I, I noticed that a lot of agents seem to start off in editing. And, and I was kind of curious what you think that kind of migration is fueled by. Well, in my case, it was fueled by having kids and wanting a flexible schedule. And I think that, that that's often the case. For people like they just sort of want, you know, it's just a more flexible job when you're when you're an editor at a publisher, you develop a specialty and, and that's really all they want you to focus on, understandably. And then, you know, that can get a little limiting after however many years. So I think people people make the switch for for that reason. And also, you know, just to be more entrepreneurial the way you can be when you're an agent. Like if you have an idea, you can sort of go after it. So, but also, yeah, it's just a better, you know, work-life balance. Uh, That's interesting. I, I would never have considered the um, the genre flexibility because I, I immediately would think of kind of the time flexibility of, you know, not having those big deadlines and things like that. But the genre flexibility is interesting. What all do you represent these days? Well, obviously science fiction and fantasy, but just sold a, a sort of thriller mystery fall and I do ro- a, a good amount of romance, which I started off with like the paranormal romance. So that had sort of the link, but you know, now it's just romance. And um, then I've done a little bit of nonfiction sort of, you know, uh, but mostly those are passion projects and, um, and then kids books. So I've done, you know, fantasy and science fiction is big, obviously, in middle grade and YA, but also I've done historical and contemporary and yeah, you know, whatever, whatever I fall in love with. (laughs) <laughs> That's cool. Do you think that um, do you think that each of those things requires you to have sort of a different 
skill set in sort of selling to editors or knowing what the market is like or anything like that? Or do you think they're all kind of roughly equal in terms of what you have to do as a business person? No, you definitely have to invest time when you go into a new area. You have to meet the editors. You have to read in the field and understand what people want. You know, I have kids, so the sort of middle grade YA thing just kind of happened organically for me. You know, I was just reading into that area. But it was like a process of reaching out and having lunch, basically, or drinks with you know new people, which is actually like really fun to do. So and doing research online and, you know, whatever needs to be done. Do you think that that um, kind of, I don't know, the interpersonal aspect, do you think, I, obviously, it's got to have changed a bit with COVID, but do you think even before COVID, the way that things are maybe getting a little bit more decentralized, um, you know, publishing isn't necessarily 100% in New York anymore. Do you think that's kind of changing the way you do your job? You know, yes and no. I mean, there was a time when I started where I literally like, you know, had to like say, okay, I'm going to take this four hours and, you know, collate all the paper manuscripts and put them in the box and print out the letter and rubber band it on top and fit everything. You know, like it was like very... There was a lot of like that just sort of physical nitty gritty that just doesn't happen anymore. But it's really it's just still about knowing people. And yeah, I guess now, like maybe I make more of an effort to travel, to go to conferences, to meet people who aren't based in New York. Mm -hmm. But yeah, now there's just no substitute for that knowing someone because, you know, you're trying to. It's like, you know, you're trying to, to match up. It's like giving somebody a present, right? Like you want to them before you can give them the right book. So <laughs> it's just sort of the same thing as an agent. You have to know the person, know what they love, and then um, try to, you know, do it right. Yeah. Oh, that That's, that's kind of cool that you kind of – I, I think that a lot of people – uh, especially kind of coming into uh, writing in general, they kind of look at agents as, you know, both in the good and the bad as a sort of gatekeeper sort of thing. Uh, you know, I give you this thing and then you turn around and give it to someone else. But I don't think they really think about what's involved in that and the kind of knowing the right places to send stuff. Cause we've obviously, you know, I I've been one of your clients for what, uh, eight, nine years now. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had this conversation many times. But it's kind of, uh, I, I think that before you actually have an agent, you don't really understand kind of that interpersonal, the, the way that you can rely on them to not just deal with submissions, but you know, like, like we, we had a talk pretty early on in my career where you basically said to me, I had, I had gotten, I don't, I wouldn't even call it a tiff, but I had, it had been a, a little thing with my editor and that you had basically come to me and said, Brian, look. If you have any problems, you tell them to me and then I tell them to the editor. And that way, the buffer is there. Uh, you, I don't have to ever have a negative word with my editor because that's one of the things you do. Um, and then she doesn't have to be annoyed with her author being all prissy about something. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's one of those weird interpersonal things that is really underrated when people talk about agents. Yeah, I actually, I don't remember that particular thing, but it totally happens all the time. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I'm here for. And because I'm a professional and the editor's a professional, we can sort of do that without it becoming personal. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it works pretty well. Yeah. And I, I, I think it was something that hadn't even occurred to me up until that moment, mm -hmm. but, uh, but gosh, is it handy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, it's definitely part of my job. And I think it's helpful for editors too. They can, you know, I can, I can play the bad guy. I can sort of be like, oh my God, that cover is terrible. It's not going to sell. It's a nightmare. Da, 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 da. And then the, the editor can sort of, you know, go down to the hall to the art director's office and say, oh my God, the agent hates the cover. Whereas I know that they hate the cover too, but they have to work with the art director, right? Like it's not fair to ask them to to, you know, be acrimonious with this like super powerful person in their organization. I'm totally happy to be the bad guy and be like, what are you thinking putting a purple elephant on there? Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, so then they can all blame me and we can get a good cover, which is the important thing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. That's one of those little things in kind of the business world that, that, uh, you 
you always have to have somebody who's willing to be a bad guy mm-hmm. and willing to kind of take a little bit of flack and kind of everybody, I think maybe even intuitively understands that that's, it's just a buffer thing to protect everybody's egos and to make sure that everybody's kind of getting along in different ways. Right. I mean, there's just a lot of, um, it's just a very subjective business too. So it's just not always easy to know what's right. So, you know, sometimes they'll come back to me and be like, you're wrong. It's the elephant. It's like super important. And I'll be like, well, okay, you know, and (laughs) that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you don't win every one of those conversations. Yeah. Um, It's, it's all about kind of picking your battles and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. For sure. The, the subjectivity is an interesting kind of thread to pull on because you could kind of publishing and writing and anything art wise, it's, there's this weird thing where where everybody has their own opinion on on how they feel about certain things and it and and with anything creative i think um and do you think kind of the end of subjectivity is sales numbers or do you think even sales numbers are kind of this uh almost ridiculous like you know measure of how good a book actually is well it's not how good the book is it's how um successful yeah it is you know, I mean, I'm there's a lot of stuff out there that is terrible that sells really well. <laughs> Typically not a first novel, right? Everybody's first novel is really good, but you know, these people like who have been I'm not gonna name names, but you know, um they're just yeah. See on a sales side, you know, it's filling a need. People want that book, they you know, they're enjoying it, but it's a helpful metric for my job i mean you know i do read things that come in that i like mm-hmm. and i'm like Ugh, i just can't sell this you know and so it just it helps me because i see such a huge volume of material and you just you know you have to make hard decisions and that's like a really firm metric like well i i can't sell it so i can't take this person on as a client yeah so yeah so that's helpful well and oftentimes i i you know kind of talking with other authors that's often a very big frustration of you know an author of authors going out on submission and saying yeah i got you know five different agents or five different editors who all came back to me and said i love this but i can't sell it right. and it's this it's a very nebulous thing that i think can be very frustrating to the creative side but is i don't know it's part of the reality of the business right it's not nebulous really i mean what it means is that even if i send it to an editor and they love it and they take it to their boss and they love it then the sales department the people who have to like you know take the book to the bookstores are going to get pushback from the bookstores yeah so it's like a really it isn't it i know it feels nebulous but it's actually very concrete and you know there are things like i mean i've always loved rom-coms and you know, for the first 10 years of my career, you couldn't sell a rom-com for like, you know, you, you couldn't give it away. And now that's all that's being published, right? And so it's a timing thing. You know, I can't tell you how many sort of YA um, science fiction and fantasy novels come into my inbox and they can be they can be very good, but there's just no room for them right now. Like there's, en- you know, uh, enough out there for the average reader. They don't, you know, they most people don't read that much. So there's enough good material for them in sort of the established series. So, you know, I, they're tough. It's really tough. So, yeah. So it is super frustrating for authors. But again, you know, from my point, you know, I come up against that sort of hard reality and that helps me sort of move on from, you know, feeling bad about saying <laughs> no. The talented in my inbox. Yeah. I, I was kind of curious uh, with my own experience because um, and this may be, you may have a totally different perspective on this. Um, but I felt like when you kind of offered to represent me, um, I felt a little almost like you were investing more in me than in the book that I had sent you. And I, I was kind of curious if from your perspective that is at all accurate or if, because, uh, and I say that because you had me rewrite most of Promise of Blood before we went on a submission. Uh, and And you were very nice about it. Uh, and it and it went very smoothly, and obviously it went quite well. But uh, but I was kind of curious if you do if you think about that consciously as a okay, this person seems to have the spark that I could work with, um, versus 
oh, this book is dynamite. I don't really care who the client or what the client is like. This book is so good. I'm going to sell it. No problem. Well, it's not like a, an either. It's not like a yes or a no. It's sort of a sliding spectrum. Um, I think with fiction, though, I mean, what you want, especially with genre fiction, is it's it's not about selling one book. It's about establishing an author and then selling many, many books. So you definitely look ahead to, you know, is this person going to be professional? It's I mean, you know, we've talked about this. It's it's a marathon. It's a slog, you know, like you, it's tough to keep writing books. And so I'm sort of, you know, judging whether someone can do that, particularly like in the romance area. You don't just have to, to write a book. You have to write like at least two books, preferably three or four a year now. I mean, man, like people who can do that, that's hard. So you're trying to judge that. Yeah, it's it, and I'm not always right. And but with nonfiction, sometimes, you know, people have just one primary book in them, right? Like if they're an expert, they write the book on whatever. And then maybe they might do some sort of follow ups or spin offs. But so then it's less of an issue. I, but I don't usually do nonfiction. So it's not my area. Now, you had mentioned that you kind of got into it with like a younger audience um, playing with uh, doing doing the science fiction and stuff like that. Did Were you kind of a science fiction fan growing up? Or was this something that when you reached kind of that time of of working at the Harvard Harvard Business School kind of going, oh, this is super boring, was science fiction was just that kind of something that you went, oh, well, this is actually quite a lot more fun and this would be more fun for a career. So I, I was a science fiction reader growing up. I mean, back in the day, honestly, there just wasn't very much as nearly as much good stuff for young readers. So people would sort of move into reading science fiction or, or anything else when they were, you know, 11 or 12, mm-hmm. if you were a, a big reader. So I did, I guess like I bumped into like very early started um, reading like Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov, um, Robert Heinlein. My parents gave me, I don't think they understood what, what kind of books they were handing to me, but <laughs> they did. And um so, so I did have that, but, you know, I could have, I've also read a ton of mystery and romance and all sorts of, you know, historical, but so it was a little bit just, it was a little bit calculating, I, you know, science fiction and fantasy used to be much less cool than it is now, like before, I mean, there was Star Wars and Star Trek, but there really wasn't a lot of other pop culture stuff and So I just thought maybe it would be a niche where it would be sort of easier to get my foot in the door. And it is, you know, it was, it it worked for me. And then partly because I was having kids, I was like, okay, let's just, you know, focus on this area where I I know everybody as I started aging. And then as I had more time, it sort of expanded. But no, I was totally a science fiction reader as a a kid. And, uh, And, you know, you need that base, I think, to like sort of get into the field. Like, you know, it really is helpful to have read a lot of the Golden Age stuff and have that background. Yeah. Do you think that kind of that that uh, that base of kind of those 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 Golden Age science fiction novels, do you think that still has a deep effect on kind of what's being published today and and what people are reading today? Um, Because it it feels to me like like there's so much now, especially with. You know, I feel like almost like epic fantasy went mainstream with Game of Thrones suddenly. Mm -hmm. And then now there's, you know, now you've got Marvel that is just the biggest movies in the world. You've got a lot more of that kind of the nerdiness is now mainstream. Um, And I'm I'm curious if it's more if it still feels like it kind of harks back to the old days or if or if we've built something new that's kind of a big machine. Well, it's a big machine, definitely. But I think the heart is still there in the old things. But maybe people don't even know anymore that it's still, you know, where it comes from. I don't know. It's true. I mean, it's almost a good thing that a lot of that old science fiction doesn't will read the same way because that opens up room for new writers. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's the reason like mystery is really hard to sell into because, you know, thanks to, to ebooks, all these amazing old, you know, um, mysteries from the twenties, thirties and forties are available to people. And so they don't really need new ones. They can discover all of this old, you know, and it, and it's not at nearly as dated as the SF yeah. and fantasy is. So but I don't know, like, you know, you look at John Scalzi, right? And he's like, or my client, uh, Charles Strauss, and they're, they're always talking about like H. Beam Piper and, and, you know, the debt they owe to him and well, how many people have read, you know, Piper, but 
lot of people have read Scalzi and Strauss, so they're sort of getting it secondhand. Yeah, I mean, I guess any kind of creative endeavor that you can kind of trace roots through. I mean, music is a big one where you can really trace where music comes from going back the last hundred years yeah. and kind of see how things develop and and how all of that changes. And I, I got to imagine that there's there are people out there who can do that with science fiction and fantasy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I was neighbors with David Hartwell. Um, and he, well, not only like, could he talk about it, but if you went to his house, it was kind of like a living museum of, of all these old authors. And I mean, I think that one of the best ways, if you want to learn about it is to go back and read the old anthologies, like, because the short fiction, um, because it was so idea based, I think it, it holds up better than the novels. And of course it's fast and it's just a fun way to, you know, I don't know, go back and, and maybe find an author then then you can pursue to um to their novels if it if it yeah read all of their old stuff and i it's it's interesting because i i I guess i do have some friends who who write very prolifically in like short fiction and stuff like that and they still publish prolifically and in the few markets that are kind of left for that sort of thing but uh i mean x no x number of decades ago like you could have a career writing short fiction and so like you could really go explore an author that you've read well and still find new things that they mm-hmm. never actually you had not read before right right yeah i think that's true which is kind of wild to me like kind of growing into my career on the internet where you can find anything easily like with that without a problem you always know what's going on at any time just with a few strokes of the key it's it's a little bit odd that that's kind of do you think that's kind of maybe removed some of the um i don't know the 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 fun or the mystery out of of these big science fiction authors who you know just producing tons of stuff no i mean i really like being able to get everything it used to be i mean it is fun to go to a used bookstore and poke around and see what's there but it's very frustrating to sort of you know i don't know i I remember i started with like book three of the belgariad with david eddings very confusing, but like that's what was there at the bookstore. So I wouldn't really wish that on people. In general, I you know I I, I like the way it is now, but it it is fun to do the treasure hunt. But you know, there's other things you can do that for. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pit. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So you are one of the agents, and I know that there is kind of a a big spectrum of how agents kind of interact with their clients and what they will provide for their clients. And you are one of the agents who will do editorial stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious if that is, if that's a fun thing for you, if that's something you've kept because you find it to be really an enjoyable part of being an agent, or do you think that it is kind of uh if it's something that maybe just separates you a little bit from the pack and kind of gives you uh, a little bit more opportunity to develop things you know like what where does that kind of frame of mind come from well mostly i think it's just a a competitive advantage because i can you know if something's perfect there's going to be you know 10 agents who want it but if you know you see sort of a nugget of genius then you might be the only one and then um you don't have to do sort of a, a competition, like a beauty contest, they call it, for, you know, becoming the agent. But it's also something you can't turn off in your brain once once you have it. But I had it before I was a publisher in, in publishing. I mean, when I was just a reader, when I was in college, I would be like, oh, that book was so good. If only the ending had been like this. And I don't know. I just assumed everybody was like that until finally one of my friends was like, Caitlin, you realize that most people don't think that way, right? Like you really should pursue that job in New York in, you know, as, as an editor, I'm like, Oh, you know, okay. But no, I mean, I would, if something came in and was perfect, that would be amazing. I would get to read like the perfect final book. It's a huge luxury once you're in the business to read a finished book instead of reading an early draft. I was 
was I was talking to someone about like I, I love the vampire book, The Historian by Elizabeth Kostan. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but I was talking to it about it to a friend and she was like, oh, yeah, but God, there was so much of that historical background information. And I was like, there was? She's like, oh, the editor must have, you know, made them take all of that out. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, no, there was not. I didn't have any trouble with that. So I got to read like the cleaned up version and I loved it. So it's just, you know, more fun. I don't know. But it is an advantage to be able to do the editing. And there is definitely, it is definitely fun to suggest things to an author and sort of see your suggestions come to life, like either not usually exactly what you say, but usually in a better way with what what they their idea. So that's really fun um, and to have that back and forth part. But it's also a lot of work. Uh, so, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I remember when when you first took me on as a client and we were rewriting Promise of Blood, uh, you made it very clear to me that I was not a priority. And uh, and again, you were very nice about it. <laughs> but but it took us, gosh, it, I think it was a good nine or 10 month process going back and forth very slowly. And you basically said, look, I, I will respond with edits when I have the time. And I remember I was freaking out every single time. Uh, but ultimately it was fantastic yeah. and it, it worked out very well in our favor. But, uh, but it, was, it, it is interesting to look at that and, and think about how much more work that is for you and what that requires kind of you to carve out bits of time to be able to do. Do you do you find that do you find that your kind of background as an editor gives you a, a a separate advantage in that you kind of understand what editors have to be thinking about at all times a little more than maybe other agents do even? Uh, well, first of all, there are a lot of agents who are editors, as you pointed out earlier, so it's not a unique advantage. Yeah, and it's it's less about the editorial work on the manuscript and more about sort of understanding what the editor needs from from me and from the author, what it's like for the editor when they walk into that sales meeting or marketing meeting or cover meeting and sort of, you know, what they need to get what we want, if you know what I mean. Like they were all sort of partners together and, you know, it's not very helpful if we're like, oh, we want a beautiful cover, you know, that's not useful. You know, you have to be like, okay, here are the, you know, four comparative titles and this, you know, like, so to really give them tools to get what you want is helpful or to sort of encourage the author, like, you know, no, really, if you pursue this social media, this will give your editor some, some ammunition when they go into the marketing meeting to say that you should really get those extra, you know, AREs or whatever it is that would, be a good thing for the book. So that's helpful. But you know, a lot of people can give good editorial advice, I think. And and really like I think that sort of doing that, there's so many changes that go on at publishing houses with editors, you know, leaving. And so it is really useful to have an agent who can sort of know all 12 books in your series and be the one that, you know, edits like and editors are really overburdened. I mean, even before COVID, they were. So can't always count on an editor to do maybe as thorough an editorial job as would benefit the book. Well, and and timelines in the publishing industry are famously loose, uh, right. both for, you know, both in the, the advantage of an author in that, you know, everybody kind of is a little bit more um, casual about things. And if, if you're giving them warning, you often can, you know, you can have a deadline extended if you give them lots of warning and you're and you're trying to be really good about working with them, but also kind of against the author and that, you know, sometimes you turn in something and then, you know, I, I've heard horror stories about, oh yeah, I turned something in 10, 11 months ago and still haven't heard back from my editor on it, which is kind of crazy to me. It is crazy. It should never happen. Um... So, you know, that is would be a situation where the agent should get involved. I mean, Tor used to be notorious for that, but it's a, a much tighter ship these days. I think often it goes comes down to now to like the sort of smaller independent publishers. Um, and they, you know, you feel for the editor because you know how hard they're working. But at the same time, you know, that, that's ridiculous. You can't let somebody wait that long. 
And sometimes, you know, that that's when you, you can step in. I'll be like, look, I'll just do it. You know, let me. But often, you know, editors, they don't they can't get to it, but they can't trust someone else to do it. So but at least, you know, with these people, I've known them for 20 years. So it's a little more likely that they'll let me do it. So this may be a fraught area to talk to a, an agent about, but self-publishing is a very weird place. Um, And it has been, I feel like, ever since it kind of became more popularized. And with self-publishing, there is a lot of kind of undercurrent of vitriol of, oh, we've got to stick it to the stick it to the the gatekeepers, stick it. You know, you don't need an agent. You don't need an editor. Are these things that does it kind of make your eye twitch a little bit when 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 you kind of hear that kind of stuff? Well, I. Actually, I think it's great that self-publishing is out there as an option. Um, you know, now now the stuff is the books can, that are more niche can be available if people, you know, and they definitely are gatekeepers and they make mistakes all the time. So it's great to have this sort of second chance for a book to find its own audience. I think as a reader, it, it's it's hard for me to read things that are poorly formatted or have typos or where the point of view jumps around. So I can't, it has to be really high quality uh, for me to read it, but I do, there are definitely a lot of self-published people that I like to read. So now I'm sort of more of like a, you know, go with God kind of person about that. But yeah, I don't see why they should be so mad at us. Come up and like, tell me that, you know, I, I'm like a bad person for being a gatekeeper. I, I, I just don't see them, right? They're doing their own thing. Now that they have their own, you know, world to, to publish in. Yeah. Do, do you think that, uh, do you think that most agents feel that way? Or do you think that agents, uh, and maybe agents is even a bad, maybe editors, uh, maybe more likely to get a little bit annoyed with kind of the whole ecosystem? Because if you strip away kind of the artistic part of it, then you look at self-publishing kind of does pull quite a bit of business away from kind of traditional publishing. I think I think if the publishers are are dumb enough, you know, not to they just don't know how to publish into that area. So, you know, that's their problem. I would expect that this, you know, something will happen on the self-publishing side where it starts to agglomerate. I don't know what the word, you know, like maybe you start to get something closer to publishers on that side because a lot of people don't like doing all that. They just want to write their books, right? They don't mm-hmm. do all the all the work that goes into turning it into something people can read. So I think I'm more concerned about the way that whole ecosystem is kind of dependent on Amazon and, you know, could sort of get shut down at any second. You know, talk about gatekeepers. Like that's, you know, a little problem. Yeah, and, and that's an argument that I've heard before is that you're not really self-publishing. Because you're so dependent on Amazon for what, like 85, 90% of your sales that it's, that it's not actually self-publishing It is publishing through Amazon. Um, and you get to keep control of the creative part of it, but you also depend on them. Right. Like it's a lot of work, what those people do. And I think it, it's kind of unfair that it's not like the best written book. It's the best written book by the person who likes to do marketing that you know succeeds which is kind you know it's a different kind of gatekeeping so yeah i i definitely i've joked on this podcast before about how self-publishing the most successful self-publishers tend to be marketers who are really good at their jobs but also like to you know dabble in writing as a hobby (laughs) and i'm sorry but i feel like a lot of them have spouses that don't get enough credit for all the work that they're doing behind the scenes to like push the you know books that people are working on so or, you know, cousins or like, there's got to be a support team there somewhere that, you know, needs to be acknowledged. So well, because every, I mean, every book and with few or no exceptions is a group project, Right. you know, the, the core is the author, uh, but you're still going to have, you know, an editor, hopefully an editor, a copy editor, you're going to have an artist for the cover. Um, you'll, so it's, it's all going to be a group project. And I, you know, cause I've dabbled with, with self-publishing a bunch and I, I actually really enjoy it, but also there's like moments where I look at it and say, okay, the amount of effort that I have to put into X 
to do it self-published versus traditionally published, you know, like kind of the, the scales and the, you know, what do I think I'll make back on it and things like that, you know, that, that's all kind of sliding around in my head. Uh, and, and I still kind of tip towards traditional publishing, despite really enjoying self-publishing. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you have the ideal situation, you've got a mix, right? You can sort of um, get the, the, you're, you're also very entrepreneurial, Brian, for, for especially for a writer. And um, so it's it like, you know, it works for you that way. It sort of pushes those, you like to push those buttons and do that. But um, not everybody is like that. And yeah, so it's, and a lot of people are intimidated, I think, or at least the ones that I come into contact with, maybe I have a selected pool, but no, I think it's, I think it's great that it's out there. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I have a lot of clients like you who are sort of hybrid model and I think that works pretty well. Yeah. Did, were you ever interested in trying to write? You know, I guess being an agent, like I see how much work it is for you guys. I, I have a huge amount of respect for all of you. So I guess I took a class in college, but you know, that's as far as it went. Yeah. But also you do see a lot of editors who, who want to be writers. Um, and I, uh, there's a lot of crossover between the, you know, inside the industry of people who want to be creative professionals, but also work as kind of, doing the, the, the behind the scenes stuff. Um, is that just kind of, uh, just, just kind of par for the course for an industry like this? I think so. I mean, I think that's so certainly the way it is in Hollywood. I think once you have the connections, it's easier to get sort of day job doing book reviews and things like that. And I, I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, as a writer, I think it's better to have a separate date. Like you, you had that philosophy. I know. Because being an editor or an agent, it's a, um, not like writing, but it's also a very creative job. And there's like, it just uh, takes a lot of energy um, and thinking. And so I think it would be much harder to go home at the end of the day and write than it you know would be if you were doing something more like using a different part of your brain. So, but no, I, I think it's always been that way. I think people who are serious tend to sort of segue out of the editing and into the writing. Mm-hmm. But that's a luxury, right? Like, you know, at least most publishing jobs, you still have, you know, benefits and a regular salary and things like that. So and it, yeah, and it's just, it's tricky. Yeah, I, I think that in writing classes, I, I don't think we talk enough about kind of what a stressful luxury being a professional creative is. Because you've you've made it, you know, you're you're now able to do this thing that you love doing to make money and to pay your mortgage and put food on the table. But also you have to do this thing that maybe you don't actually love that much anymore mm-hmm. because it now is your job. And it's, it's this weird kind of um, yeah, stressful luxury maybe. Yeah. It becomes very complicated. I really, you know, part of the first conversation I have with an author is all, often like, you know, how are you supporting yourself? Because it, it's really hard enough to write a book that's going to get published without sort of having the pressure of, you know, this has to get published so I can pay my mortgage. Like that's just sometimes maybe it helps people write faster and more and have that pressure. But a lot of times it's, you know, write creates writer's block or it doesn't let you be, you know, explore new things or creative, take risks creatively. So, but it's, it's everybody's different. It can be very tricky to, you know, to, to find balance. I, I'm always fascinated because I've talked to a few people who kind of left high powered jobs to become authors and they've done it successfully. Mm-hmm. But I'm always fascinated by that sort of, gosh, I, I mean, I feel like it, it's probably a little bit maybe mean to call it kind of the midlife crisis book. Yeah. Um, but people, because I, I kind of had a weird advantage in that I came into publishing pretty young, still making minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So my like bar for what I needed to like kind of the money I needed to make and the success I needed to reach in order to like equal my standard of living was very, very low. Uh, and I'm, I'm amazed by people who kind of can pull out of these mm-hmm. high power jobs or, or just even jobs that make that are really reliable and then jump into like a successful writing career. Uh, and and do everything. Uh, some of them do it very well, 
Um, but man, I, I gotta be thinking if I had, my choices might've been different. If I had been coming out of something, I was making a hundred grand a year with really good benefits. Uh, maybe my career would look totally different as a writer. Yeah. Well, I can guarantee that their agents were cringing when they made that decision because it's just so much more pressure on, on you as the agent and you're already doing your best for them. And there's so many random factors. I mean, you know, look, COVID, like just out of nowhere, you know, but, or, or just genre changes or, you know, the change to eBooks or like so many things can happen. Um, and so I really advise people against that whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what did COVID kind of change in publishing? Do you think? Um, well, you know, there's been a lot about, it's not super new, big news, but it was great for established authors. And it was terrible for people who were trying to debut because, you know, people, um, you know, they went to, they were all like, oh, this is my chance to read Brian McClellan's backlist. I loved Promise of Blood. And they went out and bought your books. So that's great. Um, but, you know, the person who was trying to, to come out with something new, there's just no um, substitute for that sort of, you know, going out to conferences or going to bookstores or just being out there in person. So that happened. It was great for mass market, mm -hmm. actually. It was great for ebook, obviously. So it was great for people who were, are, you know, writing uh, educational books for, for kids because uh, parents were panicked. Um, and, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it is really reassuring to sort of see that, that people, you know, put down the remote and, and picked up books. So that I think everybody in the business feels good about that. But yeah, I, I would love to like go back to having lunches with people. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> That would be so nice. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you spend a lot of time kind of meditating on what the future of the industry is going to look like, what the future of your particular career is going to look like, or, or do you kind of just deal with it as it comes up and changes? Because publishing has changed a lot over the last, what, 15 years or so with audiobooks, eBooks, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so is that something you think about a lot? Well, I, I would say I definitely think about what kind of books, like, you know, what's the next big thing? Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, what's about to go over a cliff? What? you know, what is there too much of? Um, so I think about that. I try to think about strategically about format and publishers, but a lot of that's out of my control. So it's inevitable that we're being a little bit reactive. So, but now, I mean, I just, it, you're like getting, a, it's, there's so many submissions and so many manuscripts coming. It, it is hard to have time to sort of sit back and think about what's next. So, and, and really, you know, there's like a little piece of it. I'm sort of carving out my own area. So it doesn't matter that much what happens on the big scale. Yeah. I, do you ever feel like you miss things? Like I, I, I read an article, oh, I don't know, six months ago about, um, about lit RPG, which has become a big thing apparently mm -hmm. where, where you're just you're writing these adventures from a perspective. I'm, I don't even know if I have the, the genre right, that you're writing adventures from perspective of people who are trapped in video games or, or that type of thing. 
and I like when I read that article and and it was listing some of kind of the sales statistics and and uh, some of the big authors that were doing this. And I'm I, I felt like I'm like, holy crap, I missed that this even existed. Like this is a whole new subgenre that just blew past me. Um, do you ever <laughs> end up feeling like that? Well, you know, sort of, but not really. I mean, I when you're an agent, you just have to sort of go with what your own taste is. There's just, you can't, it's always a mistake to try to, you know, guess yourself and be like, well, I don't really like this, but I think it's hot right now. Like that um, leads to disaster. And so I, you know, it's, in, it's interesting to see that it's out there, but I don't feel like bad that I missed it. Yeah. I have been hearing a lot about that too. Yeah. Interesting. I, um, I just, I'm just kind of curious how, cause I, I know how the, 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 the field changes from my perspective, but I'm, I'm very curious into how the kind of the industry changes from the people that do a lot of the background work rather than kind of the public facing work. And I, I find that very fascinating. So, so it's, it's just something I like to needle at a little bit. Yeah. It's kind of discouraging from, from our point of view. I mean, with the, the fewer and fewer publishers and, and the editors uh, having less and less flexibility to take a chance and try new things creatively. Um, I feel like they're just, this stuff coming out tends to get more and more boring. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, typically something will somewhat randomly get published and everyone will jump on it because it's a little different and they're so thrilled to get something different. And then all of a sudden everyone will be like, well, of course, you know, we should all do, you know, this kind of book. So I do miss the, you know, the sort of the mid list where there was more chance for things to just more variety out there, chance for things to cross fertilize and more interesting stuff to happen. So, you know, and that's how that's how things get, you know, become trendy and then they get overpublished and then they sort of crash and burn, which is always really tragic for a lot of authors. Yeah. And, and that was one of those things I actually had wanted to talk to you about. It was this kind of this idea of um, of like sales cycles and writing fads. Um, very early in my career, like I think before I was even published, like uh, you and I were talking about Hunger Games, uh, and and how suddenly everybody wanted something like Hunger Games. Right. And as an agent, do you do you try to? Is there even any? Is there any even any point in in fighting against that, or do you find yourself just trying to go with the current without getting swept away? Well, you want to take advantage of the current, of course. Um, but you know, the, the times are cycle is so long. You can't, I mean, if, if you don't have like a hunger games kind of book, you can reach out to all your clients and be like, you don't happen to have anything like this in your trunk, do you? But you know, most people are not fast enough to sort of, um, turn around and write something to take advantage of a trend like that. So I guess, you know, I, I have been trying to sort of, uh, counter it also, doesn't seem to work very well to counter program. I have this, like one of the books I loved when I was a kid um, was a, a historical uh, novel called The Witch of Blackbird Pond, which it actually won the Newbery in like 1950 or something. And, you know, it's, it's sort of set like, you know, in the colonial era and it's about witches and all. And, and so I have, I took on a client who wrote something, a his, sort of an updated version of that about, a girl who converts to Quakerism and is, you know, in like 1650, um, Scituate, Massachusetts. And she's a midwife and they try to elope and they get dragged back and thrown into jail and they're forced to like, you know, get married in the church. And like, it's really dramatic and it's based on a true story. But, you know, so far, yeah, everybody's like, no, sorry, you know. So it's, but sometimes you just take on a, uh, project that you're passionate about and i'm pretty confident that we'll place the book but it will not be at one of the you know probably not somewhere in new york city yeah because even though the editors like it they they're not allowed to take something like that on yeah yeah you, you kind of have to like surf the zeitgeist you know stick with what you like that's within the the current um that kind of thing yeah i i uh something kind of struck me early uh 
in our kind of professional relationship was that everybody kept telling me, oh, I, you have to have a social media presence, but you don't have a social media presence. Um, was that, I got to imagine that was a conscious choice? Well, yes and no. So, you know, I have four kids and they were sort of all born in a 10 year period in the nineties when all of that was exploding. And I really like, it was just all I could do to keep up with my job. And then by the time I sort of came up for air and looked around and I was like, you know, I don't think I want to, you know, put my foot into this because it's a big time commitment, mm -hmm. really big. And everybody's already there. And I don't, and it just, you know, it just seems like there's a lot of downside. I do, I, I do a lot on Goodreads, actually, that's, but only like from, for a personal thing, not as part of my job. Do you, do you have, uh, do you have regrets or relief about uh, a not kind of getting into social media early and building a platform there? I think it's fine. You can't, you know, go, I, I look, I can't, there's no way I could do TikTok now, right? Like I'm way too <laughs> that. So, and I have no, you know, it's, you can still go and look at Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to be on there, but I don't feel like I have a lot to contribute to the social media discourse. So yeah. better just to, you know, focus on, on doing my job. Yeah. Check in once in a while, make sure Brian's not saying anything dumb. Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I trust you guys. Um, I trust my clients. And as it turns out, you know, people have been, you guys like talk about me. So, you know, I get some, some feedback from that. Um, and yeah, so, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to hit you with a couple of the uh the basic agent questions that people had hoped that I would give to you. Okay. Um I uh I normally ignore the basic questions because I feel like this isn't what this podcast is about, but having having an actual agent on uh maybe a little bit different perspective. Um so, deal breakers on query letters. You know, it really isn't great when you misspell my name. <laughs> it's um I'm, and I'm not saying I'm close to people sort of trying to be creative and different, but I, there's really no need, just right? Like a good query. Um, the biggest mistake people make is is that classic sort of tell, don't show thing. They're, they tell me it's very hard, I know, but you have to write a query letter that sort of sucks me into your story within, you know, in in the letter. You can't just tell me I've written a a passionate and compelling story that like that doesn't work right like that's not going to do it you have to get a little a little snippet of what your book is about into the letter so that is one thing and then when i pass on things i send a very short letter that says this is not right for me but thank you for the look and really a lot of times that's what it means is not right for me it could be totally right for someone else you know it's a very subjective business so but you also really want to personalize it, like sort of the dear agent thing or the dear sir, madam thing. I'm like, well, if you can't take the time, like, why should I take the time with you? You know, so it's, it's definitely an art writing a query letter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this may be an apocryphal story, but I, I heard a story once from an editor who I think this maybe would have happened back in the 90s, um, who said that. Uh, they once had a manuscript delivered to the front door of the publisher by somebody dressed as a barbarian and who declared that, you know, Thog the Great or whatever had written the best book ever and slammed the manuscript down on the on the front desk and then walked out. And I'm I'm always struck by kind of both the balls of that, but also the 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 story concludes with I definitely threw that manuscript straight into the into the garbage, but I'll always remember the person who delivered it, which isn't what you want out of you know, submitting something. I think I might take a look just out of curiosity, right? Like what what is this? Um, yeah, it used to be like when we got things um, through the mail, like anything in pencil was. Um, usually from a prisoner because they weren't allowed to have pens. So that was kind of a flag, mm -hmm. unless you were someone who was interested in, in books like that. But there's just a sh the sheer volume. Like, I don't know how I compare to most people, but I would say I get like 20 or 30 queries a day. So, yeah. and a lot of them come from people who 
are had the very high powered jobs. They were CEOs, they were lawyers, they were doctors, like really impressive, but they don't realize that that expertise doesn't translate into writing. Like that, in fact, that's almost something they have to unlearn. They have to go back to like, you know, junior high school and access like, you know, that internal sort of energy that they had before. So I, I feel badly for those people. You know, they tend to be very sort of stilted letters. It would be great if they were trying to, you know, uh, sell me on a, you know, new business proposal, but they, they don't, they don't really get it for the, the writing. So yeah, that's often an issue. Um, and then the people who are, are stay too close to sort of the model that they give. So they always try to have some clever thing right at the end of the, you know, something cute about them. And often they, they sort of push too far. Like it's very hard to be able to do that well. So if you can't think of something clever about yourself, it's fine. Just Leave it be, you know, I don't need that. <laughs> well, and it's, I think it's important to remember that, that an agent is where business and creativity collide. And mm -hmm. so showing the agent in your query letter that you can kind of have those two things meet. Um, I think that's really important. Right. Um, you know, just being able to give like a, you know, a succinct description of what your book's about. For instance, that's the meeting of creativity and business. Right. And to like, just even format your letter and have it um, like when you, sometimes when I reply to people, I get a message saying, Oh, this you know mailbox is no longer in use. I'm like, why? Like, you know, <laughs> like, so just those basics are important. What, uh, what, so what does grab your attention? I'm a sucker for humor to be honest, when it, when it's uh, done right. Uh -huh. So that will work, you know, people, people who are obviously very familiar with my clients and not a lot of people try to fake it, but you know, like they list like the two latest deals in pub marketplace and they clearly haven't read them. But if somebody really, you know, says, well, I'm a huge fan of Brian McClellan and this is, you know, this is like his books, except, you know, X, Y, and Z, like that can work. Um, somebody who knows, having credentials like if you've had a story in like a recognized venue then i'll or if you've been to clarion or one of the other programs i'll almost always ask to see a little bit just because you know you've sort of you know that gives you a, a certain amount of credibility yeah i still do ask usually for 50 pages and a synopsis first but i guess mostly because i don't want to get people's hopes up too much it's kind of a throwback from the old days when it was paper yeah but, you know, and then often something will have promise, like in one area, like, you know, really good dialogue, but not, you know, just not quite there yet with the, the craft. Um, so I, I do try in that to like give some words of encouragement to people. But, you know, sometimes you're just too tired and you just have to like, you know, just send a standard letter, even though. So I feel bad about that. Well, and, and I have one of those standard letters from my very first book. Uh, and uh, I've got, I think I only sent it to like five agents or something like that. It wasn't, I, and then I got discouraged and I was like, okay, I don't think this is as good as I thought it was. I'm going to keep working on stuff. Um, but I have one from you uh, in, in, in one of my folders somewhere. Uh, and, and I, I don't know, I find that actually very encouraging because it's a, yeah, I submitted something she didn't like it. It actually wasn't actually very good. And, uh, but you know, I ended up with this agent and now we've, you know, been together professionally for you know nearly a decade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be too discouraged, but I read somebody, I forget, like, um, if you're not getting any requests from your cover letter, then there's a problem with your cover letter. And then if you're getting a request, for 50 pages, but no more than that, you know, like it never progresses, then there's probably a problem with your prose in the, you know, in the sample. But then if you get the request for the whole manuscript, but it doesn't, um, you never, you know, get an offer of representation, then there's a problem with the concept. Yeah. So, you know, those are all different issues. You know, the most heartbreaking, of course, is when someone's a really good writer, but the concept is just not working. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What, uh, what are you looking for right now? Oh, um, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm, I, I guess my, I have a, one thing I'm looking for that I actually haven't really talked about yet. Cause I just sort of decided it in the last month or two is I feel like 
we need to be coming on a to-, to a time where people want more of a historical saga mm-hmm. um, because those were really big when I was a kid, right? Like sort of the John Jakes and then a little bit like the thorn, you know, the thorn birds, like that sort of really sweeping historical, historical book is really historical book club is very big right now about sort of little known women or, or, you know, sort of niches, but that's like got to play out soon. I mean, there's just only so many more people like that. So the next step is to write, you know, sort of a, a family saga where you sort of tell history through, a, you know, a couple hundred years through a family. So, but it can't be like just a rehash of what it used to be, right? Like you can't yeah. do John Jakes now, like things are different. Can't just be like Michener, who I read like, I don't know, 10 of his books when I was like in junior high school, right? Um, there's got to be something fresh about it, something new. And that some, some people are doing, I think, like maybe Alex Harrow has done that with witches. Mm -hmm. So I would love to see that kind of book. There's a thing that agents want where, you you know, it's what people are doing now, but a little bit different. (laughs) Yeah. So you want to see something that's like, um, like, you know, Brian McClellan, but with talking dogs, or I don't know, like, (laughs) or there's something, a good high concept. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, something that is really, I'm always looking for things that are fun. Um, things that are not, I'm, I'm really not, I don't like horror particularly, although I have represented some very successfully, Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of dark for me. Um, I would love, you know, just, just fun books. So that are things that they're like, you're like, Oh, I want the next one, you know, and you just keep reading sort of like the Naomi Novik books were with the, um, the dragons and just that kind of thing. Um. Yeah, that's cool, man. And, Na- and Naomi Novik's one of those ones that I, um, I'm really hoping to get her on this podcast at some point because uh, before I even came up with the concept of Powder Mage, uh, and I didn't actually at the time early on realize that it had put any sort of an like a little bit of a worm in my head over this concept. Um, but I uh, did a uh, coffee clutch with her mm-hmm. uh, in like 2004, I think maybe I would have just graduated high school and I went to WorldCon. Uh, maybe it was 2006. Uh, and, uh, and I went to WorldCon and did a coffee clutch with her. And I think that her first three of the, of those books were out. And, uh, and then I read those three uh, voraciously over that weekend. And it was just, it was a really fun experience that I kind of forgot about and then ended up doing powder mage and never kind of gave uh, gave kind of her work kind of the credit inspirationally that I that I probably should have. I know what I always remember with her books is I was in England and I I was at Harper and I was meeting with Jane Johnson there and she was telling me about these books and I must have she was pitching them to me right like oh I just bought these wonderful books and I must have been looking at her like what are you talking about yeah she laughed and she said well it's really hard to explain but I think you'll like them when you read it and and she was totally right but I was just like like you know my slack jawed because I just couldn't picture what she was talking about so Yeah. yeah oh that that's quite funny um, so I, I like to end this podcast uh, by asking every guest, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind or that you're even just still thinking about? What I ate? Uh, let's see. You know, um, I guess it's kind of the thing. My husband and I actually own a uh, commercial orchard. Um, I did not know that. Yeah. That is super cool. We do. And so I've now like turned into this huge uh, fruit snob. So um, we had, we really had this amazing peach season this year. We're right on the border. Some years there's no peaches because there's a freeze, but this year, amazing. And they were just, and the blue and, and so I would have to say like, the peaches and blueberries I had over the summer were, it wasn't a one-time thing. It was like every morning on my, on my cereal once oh. a month. Um, so that was maybe the thing that, yeah, comes to mind. Oh, that's brilliant. I like that. Cause, cause fruits, those the fruit is one of those things that like, I feel like so much of fruit is made, is, it's produced for packaging and for distribution. And it turns out to be not that great. Like, like I feel like one in every ten plums is worth eating, but that one plum that's worth eating is the best thing you will taste in a week. You know, like, and I kind of feel that way about peaches and pears and 
oh man, oh, a good peach, a good peach is so dang good. Yeah. And even apples, you know, Brian, like the stuff in the store is just not very good compared to, I mean, our, our orchard has like over 50 varieties. Um, oh, that's so cool. It turns out there's like this huge art to actually when you pick them, right? If you pick them like a few days too soon or too late, it really changes the taste. So our farmer is really brilliant at that. So, and it also turns out that every year is different, like depending on the amount of rain you get, like, you know, a different apple will be great some years and only good some years. So mm-hmm. this whole thing anyway. So yeah, I could go on and on. And and now I, I always bring bags of fruit with me when I go to these lunches with editors, because I just feel like the world needs people who, you know, understand, you know, how amazing good fruit can be. Oh. So that's very, like side crusade besides um, acquiring and selling great books. <laughs> that is so cool. Have you read um, Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan? Yes, yes, definitely. Oh, and you know, I, his first book was actually a collection of his gardening columns. Before even that, he's a passionate gardener. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I, I got into him kind of uh, at the uh, uh, maybe about four or five months ago, and I I feel it was like a religious experience to me because I love food and the way that he looked at food and the process of making it and growing our own food and things like that. I just I absolutely loved it. Uh, so yeah. cool. I know. And then, yeah. And then I actually, I'm also very into gardening. So I just like to read about, yeah, his gardening stuff and it's just all sort of connects. Yeah. Yeah. So, but of course, what was the last great thing that you ate, Brian? Um, you know, we, I, I haven't been doing, I've been doing HelloFresh. So uh, just to kind of take some stress off of having to go shopping because I, I hate shopping. I love cooking, hate shopping. Um, but last night, so I haven't been doing a ton of my own kind of prep prep and mm-hmm. all that stuff, but last night we had some leftover artico- artichoke dip, um, and I, uh, mixed it up with some mozzarella and, uh, cut open a couple of chicken breasts and just kind of stuffed the chicken breasts with this artichoke dip mm-hmm. and mozzarella. And honestly, I, we made it over some buttery rice and it was dynamite. Like it was so mm-hmm. dang good. Uh, and I just, so once in a while, like just a, a very, uh, on the surface, very basic meal just kind of hits just like that. And, and it was one of those. Oh, Loved it. That was literary agent Caitlin Blaisdell. Thanks again to Caitlin for taking the time to chat. You can find links to her agency down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Glenn with an extra N, and Jennifer and Angela Johnson for their backing on Patreon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market